On January 8, 2009, during the college football national championship game, uh, superstar quarterback Tim Tebow wore eye black, which uh, just eye black, eye black used to be applied by Greece. Athletes would wear eye black under their eyes. Apparently, it's supposed to shield you from glare from the sun. But they, they invented stickers because the grease is very hard to get off. It's, it's made to be sweatproof, right? So you just can't wash it off with water. It's kind of a pain. So they, they made sticker eye black, just little stickers of black that you put under your eyes. And uh, Tim Tebow decided, well, I have a platform here. And so he wanted to expose the world to the gospel, and he had a very limited space to do it. And so he chose a Bible verse, and a very predictable one at that. He wrote John 3.16 on his eye black. And that night, John 3.16 was Googled by more than 94 million people. At the time, it was the highest amount of Googling that any one topic had had. John 3.16 has become a popular verse. It's sort of the go-to verse when people want to send someone a quick Christian message. As a matter of fact, it's so popular, uh, I think a lot of us would admit it's almost become a little cliche. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I've experienced, if you've been a Christian for a really long time, you, you almost avoid John 3.16. You almost don't like it because you're afraid that if you use it, if someone asks you, like, what's your favorite Bible verse or do you have any verses memorized and you start with John 3.16, they're immediately going to assume you don't know anything about the Bible. Because everyone knows John 3.16. Even pagans know John 3.16. And so genuine Christians almost stay away from the verse because it's become so widespread and so cliche and so popular. It's not just under Tim Tebow's eye block. It's everywhere. But there's a reason. There's a good reason why this verse became so popular. And because it truly is one of the clearest most succinct summations of the gospel in all of Scripture. And I argue it's made even clearer when you get to read it in its context. And that's the very thing we have the opportunity to do this morning. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. John chapter 3, verse 13. We will read through verse 21. And when you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, Thus saith the Lord, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses was lifted up, or forgive me, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Please be seated. 
Jesus, after the born-again message he began with with Nicodemus, is now transitioning to teach and preach to Nicodemus the gospel. But in order to establish his authority, he reminds them of something in verse 13. Why should we trust Jesus' opinion about born again? Why should we trust Jesus' opinion about the gospel or scripture? From a purely human perspective, Nicodemus is the superior in the room. Nicodemus has more formal training. Nicodemus is the actual professional. He's not just some upstart rabbi from Nazareth where we learn nothing good comes from anyway. Why should we trust Jesus to teach Nicodemus? And so he begins by reminding us of his authority. He mentions in verse 13 how no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended. Now this can be really confusing because every one of us, because we're so familiar with the physical ascension of Christ into heaven, that's immediately what you think he is talking about. You think he's talking about physically ascending into heaven, but that's not what Jesus is talking about, right? And we know that for two reasons. He has not done that yet. And in verse 13, he's talking about that having already happened. He hasn't done that yet. And another reason why we know he's not talking about that is because it wouldn't be true. There have been people who have ascended into heaven who never descended from heaven, namely Enoch and Elijah. Those men were ascended to heaven. What Jesus is doing, he's taking a very common Jewish phrase where Jewish um, teachers would speak about, if, if they felt like they were, they were teaching the truth, that they had received revelation, they would speak about having ascended to heaven. We even saw this a little bit earlier in the book of John where there was a reference to Daniel and Daniel's vision where there was a ladder and angels were ascending and descending up into heaven. The image of receiving true knowledge from God. And Jesus is saying, nobody has the kind of true knowledge that I have because nobody has truly ascended to heaven. I lived in heaven. I'm the one who came down from heaven. This is not my home. Heaven is my home. So Jesus is establishing, you think you know guys who have had a revelation here or there? You think you know a couple guys who have seen glimpses into heaven? I'm the only one who truly can relay heaven to you. I'm the ascended one in heaven who has come down to teach you heavenly things. And so what is this very important heavenly thing that Nicodemus and everyone else needs to know? Well, whatever Jesus says, because of his authority, we need to cling to it with every fiber of our being. Now, admittedly, before we dive into what Jesus' message is, scholars, we don't really know for sure if verse 16 and onward is actually what Jesus said to Nicodemus or if it's what John is now clarifying about their conversation. Because John does this a lot throughout the book. He'll give us a direct quote, and then he'll elaborate on it. And scholars are not sure. Your Bible, most Bibles include all of this as red letter. So most people think Jesus continued this. We don't know for sure whether Jesus said 16 and on, or if John is the one saying it. But the good news is we know that whoever said it, it was put in our Bibles by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. So we have Christ's words in front of us, no matter who technically said it in history. And because Christ is the only one who has ascended and descended, we need to listen to this very, very carefully. And Christ gives us the gospel. A pure, unadulterated gospel. And so we're going to break the gospel down. Verse 16 is going to kind of be our anchor 
And we're going to really break verse 16 down and see it in context. But verse 16 is the gospel. And so we're going to sort of separate the gospel into parts. And so our first point is I want to talk about the gospel's what? The gospel's what? The word gospel means good news. So what's so good about this news? What's so good about it? What is the good news? Read verses 14 through 16 with me. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is good news because it teaches that sinners can still have eternal life. What was forfeited by us in sin, what we forfeited, what we rejected, what we lost, is still available to us. It can still be had. Eternal life is still being offered to those of us who deserve to perish. We've earned the perishing, yet eternal life is still ours for the taking. We get to live in glory forever. That's the good news of the gospel. Eternal life has been given to sinners. But the how, or forgive me, the what, raises a very important question. How? I thought no unclean thing could enter heaven. How is it possible for sinners who have forfeited eternal life to still receive it? How does this process work? How on earth can this be true? This truly should sound like news that's too good to be true. How does this happen Well, Jesus gives us the how of the gospel as well. And the how is the very giving of the Son. Look at verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The gospel is made possible because God gave His Son to us. To give, like we talk about God giving, that's the language, that, that, that has two different connotations to it. It has the connotation of a gift. You give people gifts. And it also has the connotation of sacrifice. To give up something. To give it away even though it's yours and you love it. And so Christ is presented as both a sacrifice and a gift. He is God's gift to mankind, but this is also a sacrificial giving. And because God gave up His Son, sinners can be saved. Now, if there's any place where John 3.16 is a little unclear, I think it's in here. Um, In other words, there is a lot packed into this phrase, God gave us His Son. John 3.16 doesn't elaborate on that itself. That's the only place where the verse is is succinct and clear about what is the gospel. Like, in other words, what does it mean to give the Son? If you had no Christian background, what on earth does that mean, that He gave us His Son? Well, thankfully, that's what the context is there for. The context tells us how does the giving of the Son grant eternal life to sinners. Look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. 
So the primary thing that's being addressed when John 3.16 says that God gave his son is, yes, of course, the incarnation. That's a necessary means to the end of the crucifixion. So it's the incarnation. He gave us his son in human form. But the primary thing in view contextually is the crucifixion. How does giving us the Son grant sinners eternal life? Well, because Jesus died for us. He died on our behalf. And Jesus teaches brilliantly, a teacher of the law, someone very, very familiar with the Old Testament. He says, I want to show you this, not just as some new revelation from heaven. I want you to see that this was prophesied in the Old Testament that you teach and preach. And so he teaches the giving of the son, the sacrificial laying down the son's life to save sinners. He teaches this through a typological prophecy in the Old Testament. I want us to refresh our memories on that story. So keep your marker here in John 3, but turn way back in the beginning of your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So you're going way to the beginning of your Bible in chapter 21. And we're going to look at verses 4 through 9 together. Israel at this point has already been freed from Egypt by God through Moses and Aaron. And they've been wandering in the desert for some time. And then we have this interesting event, Numbers 21, beginning verse 4, if you will. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if, the serpent, if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So the grumbling Israelites get disciplined by the Lord. God sends poisonous snakes to bite them and they start dying. These were very fiery serpents, it sounds like. And so a bronze serpent was created, an idol. And it was placed on a pole and it was literally physically lifted up. It was lifted up, up high, so that anyone in the camp could gaze at it. So now, if you were bitten, if you're dying, if you're perishing, you look to what has been lifted up, and you look at it, and you see it, and you accept it, then you are healed, you are saved from your perishing by looking at that which was raised up in the desert. And so Jesus is telling Nicodemus, why did this happen? This happened as a type, as a foreshadow of the gospel itself. This is the gospel in Numbers 21. Jesus is telling us in the same way as sinners are perishing from the disgusting venom of sin. Our sin is killing us. It is destroying us. We are going to die. God brought his son and in the desert physically lifted him up so that we could look upon him and see him and be healed from the venom of our sin. Jesus is the one who if you look at him, which is just a metaphor for faith, if you believe in the Jesus who was 
lifted up, which means he was crucified on a cross for your salvation. If you believe that, then you will be saved. So that's the mechanism. How are sinners able to receive eternal life? Because Jesus died for their sins. Jesus paid the penalty for their sins. That's how we can be forgiven. But now, and even another question is raised. So we know what the good news is. It's eternal life. And we know how it works because Jesus died for the penalty of your sin. And so I think an obvious question we can ask is, why? Why would God want to save us? Why would he want to kill his own son? What interest does God have in in, in this very difficult plan, this very difficult process? In other words, we're asking the question, why is there a gospel at all? Why not just let us go to hell? The answer is one that's at the same time so simple, yet also incredibly profound. And the answer is the love of God. The love of God. Turn back to John chapter 3 and look at verse 16 with me. John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The reason the gospel exists, the reason Jesus Christ came to us is because our Father in heaven loves us. The love of God, by the way, is actually being emphasized in these verses. He's, he's trying to, to set the love of God apart as sort of the epitome. This is the really important part of this whole passage, is God's love for the world. And we know that because of two different ways. There's two ways in which God's love is being emphasized above just even your common notion, your common understandings of love. The first way it's being em- emphasized is by reminding us of the sinfulness of the world. Look at verses 18 through 21 with me. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the description of the people whom God loves. Evil, wicked, rebellious, sinners who love the dark. That's who God loves. Until we are transformed by God's Spirit, we love our sin. And we despise anyone or anything that would dare shine a light on that sin and expose just how ugly it actually is. We hate them and we hate the light because we are so in love with our sin and we were very comfortable in it before someone came around exposing it and condemning it and showing us that it's disgusting. We were disgusting, vile people who love the dark and willfully carry out that which we know to be wicked. And and, and our sin is so bad, the text goes on to emphasize that we are not waiting for condemnation. We've been condemned. The The judgment day is not so much the day of condemnation. That's just sentencing. 
In, in our legal system, you're first found guilty, you're judged, and then a, at a later time, there's a sentencing. Determine how long you're going to, wh- what the payment is going to be. We've already been judged. We're guilty. We're sinners. We deserve death. The gavel has already been hit. We are merely awaiting sentencing. That's the ugliness of mankind. That's the ugliness of the world. Now, this, my, my narrative here might seem to be contradicted by verse 21, which seems like it's saying, well, there are people who, who are not like this. Um, but that's, that's not a good way to interpret verse 21. Verse 21 is not saying that there were people who have, who have loved righteousness and then they found the light because of their own good deeds and their own loveliness. And then there are other bad ones. Uh, That interpretation would fly in the face of just so many passages, we don't have time to even break them down. What verse 21 is addressing is those who have already been born again by the Spirit. It's addressing what happens when you are taken out of darkness by God and been forgiven. Then you do love the light. You come into the light gladly because the Spirit has now worked good works in you and you're excited to show it to people. You're not ashamed of your life anymore. But the text emphasizes it's not a self-righteous thing. Because you are coming into the light not as someone who has done good works and then saying, Jesus, look, I've done these good works. It's time for you to save me. But the text emphasizes that they've been carried out in God. Once God transforms you, then you're glad to come into the light. I love the light. I, I, I want the world to see what God is doing with me. D.A. Carson summarizes it perfectly. He says this, The lover of light does not prance forward to parade his wares with cocky self-righteousness, but comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This strange expression makes it clear that the lover of light is not some intrinsically superior person. If he or she enjoys the light at all, it is because all has been performed, which without shame or conviction has been done through God in union with him and therefore by his power. The one follows its course because its deeds are evil. The other follows its courts not because its deeds are righteous, but because it longs to show that its deeds have been done through God. Verse 21 is addressing people who have already been saved and then therefore come into the light. But the overall point of the passage is not to say there are some who are good and some who are bad. It's to say all begin in this wicked, terrible place. All begin fallen, disgusting, and loving sin. And that's what we mean by world. That's who God loves. How does this emphasize the love of God? Because I would just remind you, it's really easy to love lovely people. It's really easy to love people who love you back. It's really easy to love people who treat you well and think really highly of you. Every one of us is capable of loving those kinds of people. That's not the kind of people that God loved. God loves people who despise Him, who hate Him, who reject Him. That's the kind of people God loves. He has a love that is altogether unlike ours capable of loving in a mysterious, incomprehensible way his enemies. But the love of God is enhanced even further, not just by showing us the grotesque nature of those whom he loves, but it also is enhanced by the value of the gift that he gives on their behalf. You, you, you can sort of tell someone how much you love them by what you're willing to give them to some degree. 
And what was God willing to give for disgusting, vile sinners? Verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. If you're not yet convinced about how much God loves, then consider what He gave up to prove it. He gave up His one and only Son. Now, I personally prefer the older translations. I wish the ESV rendered this the way the older ones do, that he gave up his only begotten son, because I think that that speaks more directly to the, to the nature of Christ and why he's so valuable. He's so valuable because he's God's begotten. We talked about eternal generation a while ago. He is the unique one eternally from and with the Father. He is more precious than anything in all of creation, and that's who God gave up for sinners. No matter how you translate the text, what's, um, what's involved here is, is this amazing divine relationship that in some way, shape, or form, the Bible gives us permission to think of it by an analogy. And if you, if you need an analogy to help you understand the relationship between the first person of the Trinity and the second person, you think of what you think of with father-son relationship. And so let me ask you, who do you love so much that you would sacrifice your own children for? Are not our children the things we love most in this world? If you're a parent in here, I guarantee there is nothing in this world that you would ever give up your kids for. Especially not sinners. And that's who God gave up His Son for. And let me remind us, as much as I love all your children and my own, they are nothing in comparison to the glory and majesty of the eternal divine Son of God. None of us are. The Father gave up the most precious gift the human mind can possibly conceive of. That's how much He loves. Nothing could possibly better prove the love of God like the giving up of His only begotten Son. And this is why, let me tell you, we talked a couple weeks ago about our age of apostasy. This is why you must stick with Christianity. You must stick with Christianity. You're not going to get this in any other religion. Nothing else, no other faith, no other belief, no other metaphysic, whatever you call it, worldview, religion, nothing else offers you a love like this. There is no other God who has given His only begotten Son for sinners. There is no other God who loves like our God loves. He loves the world so much that He gave His only Son. Now, if you'll permit me, I have to go on a rabbit trail for a second. This is a Reformed church, and I know that there's just too many Reformed people in this church that would be upset with me if we passed by God's love for the world in John 3.16 without talking about some of the controversy that has surrounded this verse. Because John 3.16 is without a doubt uh, the most common verse that's off, often marshaled against the very Reformed theology that we teach here at this church. Right? Part of our confession of faith is we teach that God predestined a particular people and then he sent his son into the world to save that particular people. And the argument is made from John 3.16 that this verse is clearly teaching the exact opposite of that. God did not predestine a particular people because he loves the whole world. Not an elect, the world. And he didn't send his son for an elect, he sent his son for the world. 
And so John 3.16 has been often used to utterly destroy our doctrine. And so I just want to briefly let you know why I don't think John 3.16 is a threat to Reformed Christianity. Uh, for starters, the argument that I just presented to you is, has a big assumption involved in it that we all have to be careful of when we read any book of the Bible, but especially when you're reading something written by the Apostle John. And that is, it is assuming a certain definition of the word world that we cannot assume. The assumption is that when this word world is used here, it's intending to communicate every single human individual that has ever lived or ever will live. That is sort of how we naturally interpret the word when we come across it. But you cannot assume that that's what the word means whenever you read it in your Bible. It is emphatically the case that the scriptures use the word world in a wide variety of ways and oftentimes in very limiting ways, ways that do not include every single person. Let me give you just a couple examples. So later in John, we're going to read this. Jesus says about his disciples, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me for they are yours. So here the word world does not include the disciples. I'm praying for them, not for the world. So they're not part of the world in this text. So we have exceptions. People being accepted from the world. Even more explicit, John in one of his epistles says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If you interpret the word world as every single individual, this verse is a flat contradiction. He's saying we are from God, but we're, we're actually from the evil one because we're part of the world and the whole world is, belongs to the evil one. So I guess we're not from God after all. No, the word world here is included just unbelievers, not Christians. So sometimes the word world is, is, is limiting, not counting disciples. Sometimes it's not counting Christians. Sometimes Paul will use it just to, not talk, just to talk about Gentiles, right? He does this in Romans 11. Now, if Israel's trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Here, Paul is juxtaposing Israel with the world. The world, in this context, doesn't count Israel. Israel is its own thing. The world is its own thing. So all of the Jewish people are accepted from the word world in this context. I, I could actually make examples abound and abound and abound, but I, I think you see the point that oftentimes the word world can just be a general description for all the nations. It's oftentimes limited by its context. Sometimes it's universal, sometimes it's limited. And so a very reasonable way you could interpret John 3.16 is that the word world does not refer to every person without exception, but every person without distinction. Meaning not that God loves every single human individual, but that he loves all the nations. There's no kind of person that God doesn't love. And, and you might think, well, why would he say it like that? Because Jesus is talking to a Jewish rabbi. He's talking to a Pharisee who is under the impression that Israel is God's chosen people. That when the Messiah comes, he's coming for Israel. He's coming to restore Israel because he loves Israel. He doesn't love the pagan Gentiles, those disgusting covenant breakers, the uncircumcised. No, God despises them. He loves Israel. And here comes Jesus and here comes John saying, you've got it all wrong. The Messiah is not just in love with Israel. He loves the world, meaning he loves the Gentile nations as well. 
That's a very, very consistent way to read this text. But it gets even better. Oh, and also, let me just give you an exception. Um, But before I tell the second part, because you might be thinking like, man, that sounds really harsh though. If I read that text this way, now I have to believe that God doesn't love everybody. And that's not true. Just because someone might think John 3.16 doesn't teach that God loves every individual, that doesn't mean the Bible doesn't necessarily say that in a different place. You can still believe that God loves every single person without believing that's what he's saying in John 3.16. Here's the best example I have for you. I would be willing to bet that everyone in here thinks that God loves uh, the angels. Especially the angels who didn't fall. God is surrounded by a host of faithful, glorious angels. Does he love them? And if your answer to that is yes, should we put that in John 3.16? No. Angels are otherworldly. They are outside of the world. John 3.16 does not teach that God loves angels. But the Bible might teach that elsewhere. Right? So we can approach this text and say, no, John 3.16 does not teach that God loves every single human individual. It might say that elsewhere, but it just doesn't say it here. So please don't think you have to, if I go with this interpretation, then I think God there are some people God doesn't love. You don't have to go there. It's just not what this text is saying. But now that I've got that clarification out of the way, guess what? You can reject all that and still be reformed. You don't even have to read the text that way to be reformed. There are many reformed theologians who reject that reasoning and say, no, this is a universal world. This is talking about every person. It applies to every individual. But here's the other problem with the objection now. The fact that God has a universal love for all of humanity does not require him to manifest that love completely equally to every individual member of that humanity. I'll give you an example. Layla and I, a little while ago, adopted a dog. It feels like an eternity ago, but it wasn't that long ago. We adopted a dog. We had a lot of options available to us. We could have adopted a ferret. We could have adopted a rabbit. We could have gotten a cat. We could have gotten fish. So someone came up to us and said, you've got all these animals that God created. Why did you adopt a dog? We might say something like, we love dogs. We love dogs. That's why. Now, Maisie's making me question that sentiment. But at the time, at least, we love dogs. So imagine if I said that. I said this to someone, well, it's because we love dogs. And they said, well, if you love all dogs, then why haven't you adopted every single dog that's ever existed? Isn't that silly? I can have a love and appreciation for the whole species without being compelled by that love to treat every single member of the species exactly the same way. So that God loves every human individual does not mean he must do for every individual the exact same thing. That doesn't follow. And by the way, even if you're not a Calvinist, you have to admit this. You don't have to be a Calvinist. You have to admit, God does not manifest his love equally with every single person. How many of you, everyone in this room, was born, most likely, most of you were born in Christian families. If you weren't, you were born in a country where Christianity was all over the place. Would any of you, if God gave you the opportunity to go back in time, be born in the Middle East? How many of you want to be born in the Middle East? Why wouldn't you want to be born in the Middle East? Not a good chance you're going to hear about Jesus over there, is it? Does God love the people born in the Middle East? Yeah. So why did he put them there? 
Acts 17 tells us it is God who determines our boundaries. It is God who determines our dwelling place. God chose to make these people whom he loved born in a place where they will most likely never hear about Jesus. And then he chose you to be born into a place where you're almost guaranteed to hear about Jesus. Does that sound equal? No. And I could go on beyond. Even you say, well, they don't hear about Jesus but through missionaries or through their parents, but God can still give miracles and miraculous visions. Yeah, why doesn't he do it for everyone then? Why doesn't everyone just have a Damascus Road experience like Paul? Does, is, did God run out of power after he visited Paul? says, I'm, I'm tanked. I don't have the power to reveal myself to people anymore. Why doesn't God just give everyone a miraculous vision? If he loves everyone equally, he's got to treat us equally, right? No, see, we all inherently know that God does not treat every single person equally. So to come at us and say, well, John 3.16 says he loves the world. Therefore, he can't have an elect. He can't have a predestined people. That doesn't follow. So you can interpret this universally. You can interpret this in a limited sense. Either way... There is nothing relevant to the Calvinist-Arminian debate in this text. The general thing, it's actually a distraction from the overall point that we are supposed to be magnifying the fact that God loves sinners. Not just righteous people, not people who earned it. He loves sinners and he loves them so much he gave up the most precious thing in the world for them. Which leads us to our last question. The who? Right? We know what's the good news. It's eternal life. Well, how does that work? Because Jesus died for sin. Why would Jesus do that? Because God loves the world. So who is the beneficiary of this amazing gospel then? Is everyone saved now? Jesus died for the world. God loves the world. So the whole world is saved now, right? No, the text gives us a who. Look at verses 15 through 18 with me. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Could the text be more emphatic? Believe, 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 faith, faith, faith. Who is the recipient of Jesus' death? Who is the recipient of the saving love of God? It is only those who believe. You must come to Christ by faith to access his death, to access his grace. Faith is where we find the benefits of Christ. In other words, what, what John and Jesus are simultaneously teaching us here is the Reformation doctrine known as sola fide. Sola fide means that faith alone is the instrument it's the instrumental means of receiving the benefits of Christ. The, if, if you think of Christ's grace like water, faith is the hose that gets the water to you. Faith, not works, not obedience to the law, not church ceremonies. Faith is how we are saved. And no one can be saved unless they believe that Jesus, who is God, became incarnate so that he could die on behalf of sinners. 
Eternal life is bestowed upon the person that believes Jesus died to forgive sins. And so I think this helps us summarize with an application. Now that we've sort of broken down the gospel, the what of the gospel, the how, the why, and the who, there's only one thing left to do. Look to the Son in faith. Believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If there is anyone here within the sound of my voice who has not trusted in Christ by faith, I want you to hear the warnings of John 3. You stand condemned before a holy God. You're in sin. You're perishing. Your sin is destroying you. You are in the dark. But the God who loves you calls you into the light. Come to Christ and believe that He died for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall be saved eternally. Now, I also understand, and I say this with great gratitude, that there are many within the sound of my voice who have already made this life-saving choice to come into the light. If you've already looked to the Son, if you've already been saved, then my hope for you is that this text will make your heart swell with love for God and His only Son even more than you've ever had. My hope is that you will be spurred into a stronger faith, into a more sanctified walk as you contemplate the unfathomable love and kindness of God. And maybe one last thing, maybe this sermon today will help us reclaim our love for John 3.16. Let us not allow its popularity or the different ways that it's used to embarrass us of using it. We should delight in this verse. We should memorize this verse. If you're having a gospel conversation, you should quote this verse. This is a powerful and lovely gift from God. And so perhaps the best advice I can give you to end our sermon is utilize John 3.16 without caution. 